welcome to a special How We Win bonus episode. Father's Day edition. All over the country, people are staying home, staying safe, and doing extraordinary things. The best antidote to anxiety is action, and we're giving you the tools and tips from dads that you need to make a difference (laughs) right now, right from your living room. Today on Father's Day, I get to share an interview with my own dad, Devere Pearson. Very cool. He was counsel to President Johnson and shares some great stories from those years and the parallels to the work that we are still doing today. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is How, how We, we Went. Hey, Mariah, it's Sunday, a special bonus episode. Thanks for indulging me. (laughs) Of course. Listen, it's Father's Day. You get to ask for what you want today. Isn't that how it works? Happy Father's Day. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's true, I guess. I am very excited to wish my own dad a happy Father's Day. I've always felt very fortunate to have a great and close relationship with my dad. And these days are always, you know, I think all of us know people close to people are people who have complex relationships with Mm -hmm. family. And so these days are always fraught, but I think they're also an opportunity to look to people who we respect and, and uh, get good advice from and get fatherly advice from wherever we can get it. I'm fortunate to be able to get it from my dad. That's great. And we get to hear a whole interview that I have with my dad. I sat down with him a few months ago to talk to him about his Johnson years. But I want to hear about your dad first. Tell me about your dad. My dad is an amazing, amazing and dedicated father. He lives across the country from me, so I don't get to see him as much as I as I would like. But one thing that... Um, I do from, and I talk, I mean, I talk to him, of course, but one thing I do is I look at something every now and then that he wrote to me when I left home for college. And I don't remember the exact date that that was, but he gave me a sheaf of papers on when he dropped, when he and my mom dropped me off at college, they're dated eight fifteen ninety nine, <laughs> So <laughs> it was around then. Okay. Um, I kept them this whole time and it's all, you know, advice and tips and, and things like that. And, oh. you know, some of it's, um, you know, personal advice and things that are, you know, specifically about me. But I wanted to read one very short thing that he wrote that I thought was relevant to everybody. Um, and I hope it's okay with him that I'm reading this. He probably doesn't <laughs> writing it. But um, it's about dreams. And he wrote to me, don't be afraid to think and dream big. So what if you fail? The only true failures in life are those that don't try. Once you have a dream, develop a plan for achievement. Once you have a plan, take action. Don't worry about how long something will take. Time moves on. Finally, find good people to help you. Um, and wow, yeah, that's (laughs) so amazing. I love that. I will you. I'm seriously the podcast removed. Will you send me a copy of that? I, I, I want that. That's just perfect. I will. It's so applicable and such a, an important reminder. Dream big, make a plan. It's going to take time. But He sounds like Elizabeth you. Warren. Is your dad Elizabeth Warren? 
surprise (laughs) guess who's gonna be on the podcast next week (laughs) no my dad is william craven in atlanta georgia thank you dad and happy father's day that's really awesome uh so tell me about your dad and introduce this historic an incredible interview that we're going to take a listen to. <laughs> well, I've got a, a dad who's always given me really great advice um, like that as well. He's uh, had just a really fascinating and prolific career both in and out of government. He was born and raised in Oklahoma. So was my mom. And uh, they left Oklahoma to work for Senator Mike Monroney, who was one of the last Democratic senators from Oklahoma, Mm. to work on this commission to revamp Congress, which happens every so often, I guess. And then uh, thinking he was going to head back to Oklahoma, uh, found himself working in the Johnson administration instead and stayed in D.C. And that's where I was born in D.C., He's been inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, which is pretty cool. So cool. Yeah. And uh, I'm very, very proud of my dad and my family. And we did this interview a few months ago, and it's still, there's a lot of context for it that applies to what we're going through right now. Um, He was there at the end of the Johnson administration. So during Vietnam, but after Johnson had already passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of the things that we were fighting for back then, we're still fighting for, but also brings a lot of context about, you know, where we are. Um, So before we do the interview, I just want to do one quick call to action because we always have a call to action. And I thought it'd be nice on Father's Day or around Father's Day to talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents, uh, people who you have in your lives about their history. Ask them what it was like during the civil rights movement, if they were around for that. Um, Any time you have a chance, I really found this conversation grounding for me because Mm. it, it just put what we're going through in historical context. And look, no one's been through anything like this before. And my parents say the same thing, said this is unlike anything that we've we've lived through. Hmm. But there is but there is context and parallels to what we've walked through before in history. And so um talk to your peeps and and listen to them. Great suggestion. I'm gonna do that today. But first we get we we all get to to share in your dad's wisdom. So let's take a listen. <laughs> here with my father, my dad, W. DeVere Pearson, who spent a lot of time in Washington, starting with uh, Senator Monroney's campaign to reform Congress that turned into a stint working as counsel for President Johnson. What did you think was going to be your career trajectory when you came to D.C.? Well, first, it's a treat to be with you. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And to have you questioning me, as you have often in life, (laughs) but uh, I certainly uh, did not expect my career path to be uh, uh, staying in Washington. Uh, The visit to the Monroney Committee uh, was uh, uh, really a a sort of change of pace for me, and um, uh, really uh, Shirley and I had planned to go back to Oklahoma where I was practicing law. And then um, 
uh, things changed in the last couple of weeks before we were going back, and my career changed entirely for the rest of my life. You told me the story of uh, going to the White House to meet Johnson for the first time. Can you describe how that happened? Yes. Uh, First, I had known uh, members of the Johnson staff, uh, Harry McPherson, uh, Joe Califano, uh, several of them, and I had had lunch with, uh, especially with Harry, mm -hmm. several times. I had had lunch with them very recently and was called to come back to uh, lunch, and, uh, and when I got to the gate and presented my card to the gate uh, guard, he said, oh yes, I see you're meeting with the president. <laughs> That was brand new to me. I, <laughs> right. I had no idea I was meeting with the president. I thought I was there to have lunch with uh, Joe and Harry. I went in and uh, was uh, ushered into the uh, to the Roosevelt Room, which is nearby the Oval Office. And Marvin Watson, who was the uh, White House uh, secretary, then uh, came in and said. Um, Mr. Pearson, I'm sorry, uh, uh, we've had a little delay here and it's going to be some time before the president could see you. Uh, will that be a problem for you? And since I had not known I was going to see him at all, right. that was clearly not a problem. Right. I sat there for uh, some two hours and saw up on the bookshelf there a biographical sketch of Lyndon Johnson. And I thought, this is what I should be reading. <laughs> and so I did skim through it as best I could, and then uh, this is pre-iPhones. So uh, this could... was pre-pre-pre-iPhone, <laughs> uh, pre-anything right. other right. than uh, regular books. Right. And so at the end of the day, after being there for several hours, uh, I was ushered into the Oval Office, and uh, and I looked around for Harry and Joe, and there was no one there except the President of the United States sitting down in his rocking chair. Uh. at the end of the desk and ushering me in and uh, and shaking hands and uh, and I was meeting the president for the first time in my life. <laughs> so uh, that was how we met. And what did he say to you in that meeting? He, he said, sit down, I want to tell you some things that I'm interested in doing. And he uh, uh, sat down and, uh, and for about uh, 30 minutes held forth on the uh, various things that he thought were important in the uh, Great Society program, and uh, I still didn't know what my role was to be, and uh, if any. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just sat there and listened to him for about a half an hour, and uh, suddenly he reached forward and poked me on the chest and said, now I need your help, and here's what I want you to do. That was my offer of joining the White House staff. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you came home and told mom that you were not moving back <laughs> to I, unpack I, I the said, bags. I said, I think we're going to be staying in Washington a little longer. <laughs> and, uh, and she was a good sport, as always, about it. <laughs> so you worked in the White House for two years? For two years. Um, the last yeah. two years of his presidency. Right. And he decided not to seek... Re-election. Yes. He told me one story that I've always loved uh, about you were looking for a job, and uh, and he was still in office but was not seeking re-election. So mm. you you came out to interview with a law firm in California. In California. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
I didn't know what I was going to do at the time, and I was—I I had talked with a couple of uh, Washington law firms, but I was also thinking about possibly going back to Oklahoma. Uh, had a group that had considered, had asked me to consider running for office in mm-hmm. in uh, Oklahoma, and uh, uh, but which would I, be I, daunting as a Democrat running in Oklahoma. Uh, very daunting. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and and it wasn't what I wanted to do anyway. I, mm-hmm. I I wanted to practice law, and it was either going to be practicing law in Washington or going back to Oklahoma and practicing law, but I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I had a, an inquiry from a uh, law firm in, uh, in Los Angeles in California, and a, a large law firm, and they asked me if I'd be able to come out and meet with some people in the uh, firm and so I, uh, I, I sent a note into President Johnson and said, I've been asked to come out here and I would only be gone uh, two days. And uh, do I have your consent to go out there and talk with them? Right. And he, he sent a note back and said, that's fine, have a good time. And I got out there and met with the senior members of that uh, law firm in their large conference room. and. Uh, uh, and they'd, mid- they'd set up the intimidation chamber for well, you, right? I, <laughs> I, I, I guess. They, uh, <laughs> I, I think they had a room that would intimidate whoever was in it. Right. Uh, and I had about uh, four or five of their rather senior people that were there, and they were thinking about Washington, uh, opening Washington office at the mm, time. Okay. Very few firms at that time had Washington offices. And so... Um, as we just got started in our discussion, uh, one of the secretaries came in all at Twitter and uh, and said, uh, Mr. Yeah. Pearson, uh, uh, President Johnson is on the phone and says he needs to talk to you right away. And the lead lawyer said, oh, DeVere said, uh, you just don't worry about us. We'll, we'll, we'll get out of here and we'll put the phone call back to you and let us know when, when you're ready to talk right. again. Right. And so uh, uh, I got on the phone and uh, and said, Mr. President, I'm not in my office. I'm in California. You'll remember that you blessed my going out there. And he said, oh, I know where you are. I said, I'm not, I knew where you were when I placed a call. And I said, well, then what, what can I do for you, sir? And he said, well, I really didn't have anything. I just thought the call might be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and and indeed it was. <laughs> but, uh, That's such a cool story. Uh, but that, that was vintage Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he, uh, he could be very tough and was a very tough man and could be very tough on his staff. Mm. Uh, but he was also uh, loyal to uh, those who were loyal to him. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you this. Um, in light of the climate and the dark times that we are going through right now, mm. um, you were in office during the Vietnam War, a time of the civil rights movement. Um, of course, Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act, but there was still a lot of work to be done there. What were some of the darkest times that you know, in memories that you you had from? There? Well, you mentioned the two uh, uh, really darkest times. The Vietnam War uh, was uh, uh, just a terrible thing, and it was uh, eating the president alive. And remember, I was there the last two years of his administration. This was the two years when Vietnam was just pulling the administration apart. Right. 
and I, I saw the toll. I had no role in Vietnam uh, at all, but I, I watched it tear Lyndon Johnson apart. And I, uh, uh, he, he knew that I had a relationship with the Kennedys. Uh, and so what he, was your relationship with the Kennedys? I had actually uh, worked for uh, Kennedy in uh, in 1960 uh, when he came to Oklahoma, and uh, and I was a young lawyer there, and so I I had a, a a luncheon meeting with him and went on his staff and went to the convention mm -hmm. uh, as a, a Kennedy uh, representative, and so uh, I knew Ted Sorensen very well, who was Kennedy's number one. Uh, guy and uh, and Ted called me in early 1968 okay. uh, and said uh, that uh, Bobby Kennedy wanted to talk with Lyndon Johnson about a program that uh, might uh, bring about an earlier end to Vietnam. That was obviously a titillating thing and so I uh, I told President Johnson about it and he told me to ask Sorensen to be more specific about what he had in mind <laughs> right and uh, a little uh, bit more than I've got a plan to end, uh, the, end the war in, to end the war <laughs> and uh, so and there were all sorts of plans floating around mm -hmm. uh, that so there was there nothing terribly new about that uh, he had a plan uh, where uh, they wanted to have a Vietnam commission you really couldn't have on something like Vietnam a commission other than a commission that might be appointed by the president, mm -hmm. which the president subsequently did. So it, it, it wasn't something that was likely to, to get much uh, credence within the administration, but Johnson was very eager at that point to know everything that might be a possibility of something because he... Uh, he was being eaten alive by Vietnam right. uh, then and knew it and was willing to uh, look at anything that uh, uh, might solve that or not solve that situation, but ameliorate it. Uh, and so he was inquisitive but skeptical. Mm -hmm. So I had a session with, uh, with Ted Sorensen, uh -huh. who was talking to Bobby Kennedy, and I had a long talk with him about it. And he set out the way that he thought that this should function. And I sent that in to uh, LBJ. And then he, um, uh, he went back to them and had Clark Clifford, go, who by this time was uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, to uh, go back to them and say that, uh, that this just wouldn't fly. Yeah. And so um, that was a sad time because it was very clear that there would be no quick end to Vietnam, whether or not Lyndon Johnson was president. Right. Uh, that, uh, and then that led to the Johnson spring of 68 uh, uh, statement where he, uh, he announced a change of Vietnam policy mm -hmm. and that there was going to be a curtailment of the uh, bombing and that there would be a uh, reduction in the uh, troop strength right. uh, there. And uh, it, uh, it was a, a, a remarkable change. Uh, and Harry McPherson had written part of this speech, and so he, he and I had talked a good deal about what was going into it. 
But what we didn't talk about, because neither one of us knew this was going to go into it, was that he wrote in his own hand at the end of the speech that he did not want any uh, anything to interfere with uh, attempts to implement this plan and did not want to spend one minute of his time on political matters so that he would not seek and would not accept another term as president. Oh. That was... You know, that was obviously... And he, and he hadn't given anyone the heads up on and that. And he had not given anyone the heads up on that. Wow. So uh, uh, that was a very dramatic uh, event. And uh, the uh, <laughs> and Shirley and I, we were on vacation for a week uh, in, the, uh, in the Virgin Islands hmm. uh, when he uh, gave the speech. Uh, <laughs> we... Uh, for, were, were you on that trip? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, and we were there for a week, and uh, and I tuned in to the speech because I knew he was giving the speech that night, and uh, and he announced this, and I and it was as much a surprise to me as it was to the American public. And wow. I I called Harry and said, uh, Harry, uh, what happened here? And he said, You learned about it just the same time I did when he said it. <laughs> and so, thinking, uh, maybe uh, if I'd known I was going to be out of a job, I wouldn't have taken this vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I guess that's right. Uh, and uh, uh, we came back the next uh, week, and uh, the, the sad part of it was that I had a call from the White House office uh, the day we were leaving to go back, and he said, Senator Kennedy, uh, Bob Kennedy, Mm -hmm. uh, has uh, asked for an audience to meet with the president in view of his speech, and he wants an opportunity to talk to the president. And he said to his secretary, call to Vera Pearson and have him come to the meeting. And, uh, you know, I was to be the note taker of nothing else. And, okay. uh, and uh, they, they called me, and, and I said, I'm, I can't be there. I'm in the Virgin Islands, uh, and I, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not getting back for for another three days, and so I missed that meeting, and that was the last meeting uh, between LBJ and uh, uh, Bob Kennedy, yeah. and uh, and I've always regretted that uh, that I didn't have a chance to uh, see that meeting take place because they really disliked each other. Mm. Uh, they they were by no means friends. LBJ and John Kennedy had a very good relationship, uh, I think a relationship of mutual respect. And LBJ didn't like Bobby, and Bobby just hated LBJ. Mm. And so uh, there was, at that meeting, which I missed, I got a, a, a copy of the notes of the meeting, and LBJ said he, you know, he was taking this action on Vietnam and he was taking this action to not run again because he didn't want any impediment right. to a, a, a resolution of uh, Vietnam. And Bob Kennedy has said, uh, Mr. President, you are a great American. And Johnson said, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> he knew exactly what he had said, but he wanted him to say it again. Sorry, come again? Didn't quite catch that. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's all about like that. And, uh, and that was the last time that they ever met. So like we were talking about, this is, was a 
time where a lot of change in our country came because of civil uprising, because of people protesting, making their voices heard. Leaders, of course, like Martin Luther King Jr. and others putting pressure on the White House and elected officials and everybody. Yeah. Um, we are at a time now where we're seeing probably the, the biggest uprising of people coming together in the streets, organizing around, certainly in response to President Trump and in response to the current Republican Party and, and their actions. What parallels do you see behind the, the work that people are doing on the ground now and how it's affecting our government and what you saw during the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War? Well, there are parallels. Uh, one of my duties was to uh, deal with the, with the protest oh. uh, that uh, went on. I was, the, I was the White House representative talking to all of the, you know, the FBI and the, uh, and the DOJ and, and all of, the, of those who were involved. In, um, at one time, the, uh, uh, the uh, head of the FBI came in and uh, said, uh, we're concerned that some of these protests are going to uh, uh, result in, uh, in an attack uh, on the grounds of the White House, and we think that we ought to uh, put up an electrified fence uh, around the uh, White House. And I said, well, what, what happens if some, some kid uh, jumps up on the electrified fence? Is he electrocuted? And, he, and they said, well, you know, that would really depend on the voltage and so forth. <laughs> so we're not going to do that. Right. Uh, and we didn't. And uh, so that, that was a very hard time. And then Vietnam was, and this was the other thing you were asking about, was in a very big way uh, affecting the civil rights movement uh, uh, then uh, because Martin Luther King had broken uh, with President Johnson over Vietnam. Right. Uh, and this really hurt LBJ. Well, he put a lot of pressure on LBJ. I mean, he, he put an enormous amount of the, pressure. He did the march on Selma against LBJ's wishes as well. Beyond that, he broke with Johnson on Vietnam as an adjunct to him breaking with him on civil rights. Uh, and w when I first came into the White House, I, I saw Martin Luther King come in a number of times. He was a frequent visitor to the White House, and, uh, and he and LBJ were very close. Uh, so that when Martin Luther King broke with him, that was really a, a profound blow because uh, no one had the, uh, uh, the stature in the civil rights movement uh, that Martin Luther King of had. Of course, yeah. And so uh, Johnson never said this, but I think that the fact that he had lost people like Martin Luther King had to be a factor in his deciding that he could no longer effectively govern. Yeah. And that's really the decision he made. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question because one thing that I, I think about a lot in, in this time that we're walking through right now mm -hmm. um, is we keep seeing these unprecedented breaches in law and authority and the powers of the presidency mm -hmm. and uh, really fascist behavior from this president. 
and also a Republican Party that enabled and paved the way for him to be in this position um, and do these things. It's really dark and has a lot of people really scared. But we also look at the arc of history and we look at what our country has been through in the past. And um, having historical context and looking at where we are as a country right now, what gives you the most hope right now? Mm. Well, first of all, with respect to your premise, I both agree and disagree uh, with it. Uh, I'll edit out the part that you disagree with. uh, All right. (laughs) That's certainly your position. I think the situation was extremely different than it is now. Oh, yeah. I don't see any real similarities uh, in it. Uh, You had a president uh, who uh, was uh, the great civil rights president and who uh, did a lot of wonderful things for the country, but when he couldn't go any further in what he wanted to do, he stepped down. And he didn't attempt to impose his will in some kind of bogus way mm-hmm. uh, on any issue. Uh, so I, I think that what we're seeing now uh, and have seen for the past several years is an increasing willingness to uh, go well beyond the rights of a public official uh, and the will of of the American public, and and that's why I I think there is so much uh, uh, ill will in the country yeah. right now. Well, I think we agree on all of that. I, I thought I'd find a way to agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what gives you hope? Uh, the fact that the um, American public is made up of well-educated and uh, very patriotic people, uh, and uh, that's with respect to both parties, and that uh, uh, they are are not willingly uh, going to be a party to actions that just are contrary to what makes the United States a a great country. They just will not do it, and and, and my hope is that uh, there are enough of those people Uh, that they won't, for uh, this president or any president, permit this kind of of action to uh, continue. I I don't, I can't imagine that the American electorate will go on and on in a course uh, where there's there's clear uh, violation of the laws of the country and just the the goodwill of the country. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that the nature of our political system is stronger than any man or any group of men and that, uh, that, that those laws will eventually prevail. Me too. That's a good thought. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't a hundred percent agree with you or at least have as much faith in you do of the American people as a whole because I believe that many of them have been miseducated and that's the that's one of the problems that we have is the messaging and the control of the narrative that Republicans have on so many who are you know kind of essentially and I don't say this lightly cult followers at this point so. well there there is that although 
historically, the uh, Republicans have been great patriots. And um, there isn't any reason why they can't be again. They just have to uh, get their party back. Okay. Well, Devere Pearson, my, my dad, <laughs> thanks for talking with me. Well, it's an honor for me to be before such an important public figure now. And <laughs> good luck to you and all you're doing. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That was really special. And thanks to everyone for joining us. Remember, our action for this week is to talk to your grandparents, your parents, somebody important and influential in your life about the historic moments that they lived through. Also, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. And you can find all of our episodes at swingleft.org slash podcast. Don't forget to listen to our regular shows every Wednesday. 